Welcome to Improving Intimacy, a podcast to help single and married Latter-day Saints strengthen their family connections and marriages. Daniel A. Burgess is the host of Improving Intimacy. Daniel's a marriage and family therapist, father, husband, and author. Here's Daniel on this episode of Improving Intimacy. Welcome to another episode of Improving Intimacy. Today we have on the line Annarie, and she will be sharing with us her personal experiences around uh, uh, porn addiction and her relationship and her experiences with addiction recovery treatment. Uh, Welcome to the show, Annarie. Thanks, Daniel. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Give us some details. Uh, Who are you? And and, uh, tell us a little bit about your experience. Hey, I am in my early 30s. I'm an active member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I have two kids, ages eight and five. Um, I was married for 11 years. Uh, We were married in the temple and we had our divorce finalized about four months ago and separated about a year ago. So that's kind of where I'm at. This is pretty recent and and fresh and I appreciate you. Even with that coming on and, and sharing your experiences here, um, yeah. give me, give us a little background on the, uh, so you, you shared with me that, um, uh, was it your husband or you, who, who was experiencing the, the issues around pornography? Let's start there. It, it was my husband, your husband. And, and how yeah. long into the marriage or before the marriage, did you know that there was a problem? So we dated for about nine months before we got married. Um, A pretty short, uh, short time. Looking back at the time, it seemed like a long time. But about two months into our dating, kind of the time when we went fairly exclusive, he told me that he had had uh, struggles with pornography before his mission. He was a return missionary at the time we were dating. Um, He told me he'd had some trouble with it before his mission, that he'd resolved it with his bishop at that time. Um, and that since then, there it had been no issue at all, that he um, had no struggle with it during his mission. And um, that since meeting me, he felt extra strong in resisting. Um, but he wanted me to know that that had been a part of his past. Um, so I took his word for it, that it was in the past and that it was, you know, several years since he'd um, had a struggle with it. So at that time, we didn't really talk about it very much other than I basically said, hey, you know, I know I don't expect you to be perfect. I'm proud of you for resolving it. And um, it sort of went to rest at that time. Um, Then about nine months after we were married is when I found out that he was still actively um, using pornography um, and masturbating without my knowledge. Um, and I, uh, I found that out. Um, there were some things off in our marriage, in our sexual relationship right from the beginning. And, um, it was sort of when I was pressing into some of that, that he admitted that he had viewed some at that time, he told me it was just recent. Um, and, uh, that he'd never do it again. Um, he felt it wasn't something that he needed to talk to the bishop about. And I was okay with that. Um, I do feel like I had a trauma response. Um, and I was very anxious to like, believe that 
it really was just once or twice and kind of put it away um, so, at that time. Uh, what, what happened before? So you were at about two months into the relationship, you guys became serious. And I'm, I'm from what I'm hearing, it, it's impressive. Some, some individuals don't even, if they feel like their porn use or whatever sin it may be is in the past, sometimes they don't even mention it, but mm-hmm. he was mentioning it to you at about two months in, um, to, I don't know, clear the air, just keep you informed, which seemed yeah. like a good thing. How did you, what was your experience at the time? I really value what you said. You said, you know, it's in the past, but emotionally, what were you experiencing? Were you thinking, oh boy, this is going to be a potential issue in the future? Or did you feel like, oh, it's taken care of. This shouldn't be a problem going forward. What were you, what were you experiencing? That's a great question. I was nervous about it. Um, it was a little bit of a concern and actually about a month before we got married, my older sister said to me, make sure you've talked to him about pornography use, make sure you've asked him about pornography use. Um, and I said, Oh, just randomly or or did she already know? Okay. No, she didn't know. And I didn't tell her. Um, I told her, yes, we've, we've had the conversation. Um, and she seemed to imply that if there was pornography use that I shouldn't be marrying him, I very much wanted to marry him. So I chose not to tell her that, that that was something that had been a problem in the past. Um, so I was a little bit nervous about it. I knew it could potentially be a problem in the future. When she said, if there's any pornography, don't, don't pursue the marriage. Um, there's, I think it sounds pretty clear why you didn't share more is because he yeah. had issues. And I and- think rather than not pursuing the marriage, she was encouraging me to take it seriously. Oh, absolutely. Um, right. And to, to, you know, not just dismiss it, which I probably dismissed it more than I should have. So did you, you said before we went back to uh, the dating phase, you're starting to talk about how you're seeing some signs after he mentioned he had ongoing issues um, did I hear you correctly? Yes. Yeah. What were those indicators, those red flags, so to speak? Um, we did not have a good sexual relationship, um, right from the beginning of our marriage. Um, we didn't have sex very often. Um, he, there were just a lot of things that were really weird that seemed like they weren't typical at all for what I'd heard, you know, initial marriage was supposed to be like. For for the sake of the listeners and their variety of experiences, are you comfortable with maybe giving some of those specifics? What what did you see? Oh, what I was expecting. Yeah. What were you expecting or what seemed? Yeah. I think I was expecting, um, you know, honeymoon phase where we have sex, you know, multiple times a week, multiple times a day. Um, I felt before we were married, there was lots of sexual tension and lots of sexual interest. And so in my mind, I thought that once we got married, um, you know, we were going to have sex a whole bunch and it was going to be really fantastic. And we were going to want each other a whole bunch. Um, and that's not what happened when we got married. There actually was a significant decrease in any sort of sexual tension or sexual interest. Um, even though it sounds like you were wanting more frequent sex at that time. Um, and 
were you communicating that or, or did it just dry up real quick? Yes. Um, I was communicating it through our whole marriage. Um, we had, you know, what would be termed a sexless marriage, um, sex, like fewer than 12 times a year. Um, and I was the one who consistently was saying, you know, Hey, I want more, like, this isn't right. What's wrong. Um, reading lots of books. Um, I took on a lot of the blame for that. And I think because by taking on the blame myself, it was something that I could fix. So, um, I read lots of things about good girl syndrome about, um, you know, maybe like why, um, cause he would sort of say that I wasn't responding the way that I should. And so he didn't want to, or usually when I tried to talk to him about it, it just sort of, it was almost like we couldn't talk about it. Um, it never went much of anywhere. I, I expressed a lot of like my things, but then there was never much response from him. Traditionally, we, we think of the husband as the higher sex desired partner. Was that confusing to you to see he had a lower desire than you and, and that the sex was infrequent? Was that part of the reason why you're taking on the blame? It was very confusing to me, um, especially because prior to our marriage, um, I was the boundary keeper. He was always, you know, pushing the boundaries Uh, um, sexually and I was the boundary keeper. So then it was really confusing when we got married and suddenly um, it was, it was different. I, I wasn't feeling that desire from him anymore. And what was he saying? What was the feedback? And I want to respect the fact that he's not here and the listeners are, are taking this at the value uh, from your perspective. Um, with with that being said, what, what information was he giving to you? Was he saying that he wasn't attracted to you or what, what, what was the reasoning he was given? Um, not really, not really um, any reason at all. Um, after a while, as like I read more books and stuff, we did have the high desire, low desire. And so, he would say, I guess I'm just a lower desire person or, um, but no, there was never much explanation. I would say things like, um, why I did believe that, you know, he wanted me before marriage and after marriage, he didn't. So that must mean that I was like a disappointment, that I was the problem. I think that was part of it too. Um, and so a lot of that, I, I was the one saying, and he didn't really counter it um i mean he would say no that's not the case but then he'd never like tell me why or um it, or it was, do anything to make me believe anything different right in terms of like attractiveness and interest that so makes sense the absence of information left you with very little to go off of and it was like you're not it, you didn't feel that attraction towards you and he wasn't refuting it so what else were you left to believe interesting yeah And so, and so I filled a lot of that void with my own ideas and my own beliefs and, you know, read books to try to figure it out. out. So, yeah. So from there, that was about, uh, you said nine months into the marriage, then when Mm -hmm. did you doing all this research, when did it finally become clear that this was actually being as a result of his porn use or masturbation? Um, how far into that discovery was it? Okay. So I'm actually kind of embarrassed that it was so long, um, but it was years before I really 
um, pinned on, like got clear that it was pornography that was still an active issue. Um, I like, we went to a couple of therapists. Um, we went to one at LDS family services and this was probably four years into our marriage. Um, and that was fairly traumatic for me. Um, cause it ended up feeling very much like the therapist that we went to, we only went to one session. So, and, and it was my first therapy experience, but I felt very much like the male therapist and my male husband were looking at me, like confirming that I was the problem and waiting for me to like get on board or figure something out. I don't remember any discussion of pornography in that session. What, um, what were they then saying? Or uh, how do I ask this? It, it, you felt it like you were the problem. What were they identifying as the problem uh, specifically? Oh, and um, my lack of trust in him. Oh, um, oh, oh. So, so that actually, and that's something that uh, that my husband would say to me a lot. Um, I would ask him about porn. So during this time, I would ask him about it, and he would tell me, "No, I'm not using it. I haven't for years." Um, and and he would say, "You know, you need to trust me." Um, so even though he knew that he was not trustworthy, but that was what he was using as, uh, as something that needed to be resolved is I needed to forgive and I needed to move on and I needed to trust. It was, it was manipulative. He knew he wasn't being trustworthy yet asking for your trust. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I was overriding a lot of my, you know, my gut instinct. I can see now looking back that that I didn't feel safe with him and I didn't trust him and I wasn't able to connect with him because he wasn't being truthful and he wasn't being safe. But I was so unwilling at that time to look at that reality, to believe that he could be lying to my face, um, that I was taking it all on myself well, that's and trying un- to fix it that way. Unfortunately, an unfortunate event, not only the betrayal uh, from your husband, but coming across a therapist who, um, is what we call triangulating, siding essentially with one person in the, in the experience. Uh, but it, it sounded like you got rid of that person pretty quickly. You only yeah. had one session. So <laughs> the, uh, part of it is because he was male and I specifically wanted a female therapist. I felt like yeah. it would, I would feel safer. So the second therapist we went to was female and we went to her for several months. Um, and that was interesting. The only, uh, conversation about pornography that we had there was I, I remember she asked him directly once if he had current use of pornography. He said no. Um, so then all of the conversation was about how I couldn't get over his past pornography use and how that was interfering. Um, and during that time, we were assigned to have sex a certain number of times a week or a month and report back. Um, and when it was an assignment, it happened. So um, he was willing to engage with me when it was a sign and when we were reporting back to the therapist. Um, and I think I felt hopeful that like, maybe we just needed to get jump started. Um, so that's, but when, that's a little when bit, we were no longer going to that therapist, it again, uh, essentially disappeared. It, so. Again, I want to respect the fact that he's not here, but that sounds a little for the sake of the, the listener. He wasn't, uh, am I following you right? He wasn't willing to have more sex with you when you were asking for it, but when it was an assignment from the therapist, 
he would meet that assignment. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. What, yeah. what do you yeah. think was the difference? Do you think he was wanting to, uh, you know, meet a commitment with the therapist or impress the therapist or what, why the difference there? Why was he willing to comply? As I, think, I think it may have been partly that. I also think there's a rejection factor um, that because it was assigned by the therapist there, it was clearly mutually agreed that, that he was on board and I was on board. So there was no like risk of him initiating something sexually and having me feel unsafe or not want it um, or be hesitant. Is, Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it, it seems to make sense, especially the context of what we're talking about here. And what about your hurt? What about your trauma in this experience? Was the therapist mindful of, of your experience no. in this? No, I, I don't think she had much knowledge of betrayal trauma at all. And, and I didn't have much vocabulary for that either. I don't, I don't know that I even knew what betrayal trauma was as a, oh, as a category or how it might be impacting me. Um, once I learned about betrayal trauma, then my response to everything made so much more sense. Yes, yes. Um, you know, my response over the years. And you said, so. how long were you seeing this particular therapist? Um, I think it was about four months Okay, and it was right after the birth of, um, I think it was when my oldest was about a year old. So four years after our marriage and we had a a one-year-old baby at home. And this, I I think you're saying seemed to provide some sort of hope because you're having more frequent sex. Things seem to be improving, but emotionally they weren't. Um, Yes. And and I would often say, you know, to to him, to my husband, like, I, I felt like I was begging, like, please give me another chance. Like, can we do, can we try again? Can we do this more often? Um, wait, wait, begging, begging for yes. what? Sex or for, to for stay married? To have sex. Oh, for us to have sex okay. More often. Yeah. Um, I, I talked to one, one other thing that was going on here is I did talk to my um, OBGYN about vaginismus and um, got some information about a program for that. Um, so you were, you're experiencing painful sex also? Yes. And I think largely due to, um, no foreplay and, oh. uh, no arousal. Um, so I, so I don't know that, you know, the vaginismus program wasn't super helpful for me. Um, because, uh, I think the foreplay just, was absent. We, yeah, there was no arousal happening at all. So of course it was painful and not, you know, not awesome for me. But even with the painful sex, you were still craving, uh, maybe craving isn't the right word, um, desiring more frequent sex from him. Yes. I think a lot because I had been taught to believe that it was my responsibility as a wife to meet my husband's sexual needs and to um, fulfill my husband sexually. Um, And I had been, I'd been, I'd heard from parents and from church leaders that, um, men who are happy with their wives don't look at porn, which is an incredibly harmful message that Ah. I had internalized and was accepting as part of truth. So I think part of it too was I knew that pornography had been an issue for him. And so one of my ways of helping him with that was going to be to have sex with him. um, And then it wasn't working. 
I don't know if that makes sense. You actually, you read you, well, I I was about to ask that question about how, how much of this was a a preventative measure you felt was your responsibility as the wife and in this eternal marriage to protect and provide a, a source for his outlet, you know, to prevent him from going to pornography. Um, You're desiring more sex, but there was also a strong element there of, okay, if, if I'm, desirable enough to him he won't venture into this icky place right yeah I felt like it was part of my responsibility as a good wife to to you know have a good sexual relationship I also think um you know my parents had also told me that sex is a beautiful thing and and once you're married it's a beautiful part of life so I do feel like I had like a lot of positive affirmation yeah but you're like where's the beauty (laughs) yes yeah but I felt like like I wanted that and like, I wanted to make it happen. And I wasn't just going to settle for like, Oh, I guess sex is stupid and painful. And so good riddance, you know, I wasn't content to just write it off as, okay, well, I guess there are quite a few, we won't do this. There are quite a few, um, uh, spouses out there that are in similar positions as you. And I don't have any statistics at all, but at least with my anecdotal experience and, and things that I've read, uh, it seems like a lot of uh, wives will go to a place of they will actually stop having sex. But you were you were trying to make this beautiful. You were trying to uh, achieve this thing that your parents were saying is good. Uh, yeah. And so that was that was amazing. That's you weren't giving up on this hope that it could be something wonderful. Um, so when did things so to speak, hit the fan. <laughs> when did you, um, when did he, did he finally come out and say, you know what, it's not you, it's been the pornography or what happened there? How did that occur? Okay. So, um, it was when my, let's see, my five-year-old was a year old. Um, yeah. So my, so our second child was a year old. Um, and by that point I, felt like I had read all the books and talked to my doctor. Like essentially I felt like I had done everything to fix myself and to educate myself. Um, I kind of felt like I'd hit like a limit on what I could do on my end. Um, and so I, this, this was what about five, six years in your marriage? So this was, a, this was about four years ago. So yeah. So seven years. Six, seven years, seven years in into our marriage. Wow. Mm-hmm. So this is, so. wow. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, so I got to the point where I basically told him, um, I am done um, with our marriage. I, I'm not willing to live in a marriage like this. It's, it's not okay with me. Um, by then also I had seen a lot more, uh, I, I had gotten a lot smarter about pornography usage. So I think a lot of my denial, um, believing that he was not actually engaging had been broken down because I actually started believing a lot of the studies, a lot of the information that was saying, um, that pornography is an ongoing problem that you don't just turn it off. Um, like he was claiming he'd done. So basically I said, you know, I've done everything I can either you start talking and you start doing something or I'm out of this marriage. I'm done. And I really was to the point where I I was willing to get divorced over this, um, that I didn't want to live in a disconnected, 
emotionally disconnected, um, sexless marriage. Uh, we were great. We've always been great, like business partners, good at like coordinating logistical things. Um, so the other aspects of what I believe should be part of marriage were completely non-existent. Um, so I believe it was at that point when he realized that I was dead serious that, so by continuing to lie and hide his addiction, he was going to lose the marriage that he decided to start disclosing. Can, can um, I ask you a, a personal question here is, yeah. um, were you at any time in that, that seven years, um, trying to find clues or, you know, go through his internet history or browser and see if no. were you checking it? Wow. I'm impressed. No, I didn't. I didn't play detective like that. No, it, it, forgive me. I'm not suggesting you should have or anybody else should have. I, I'm just curious to what extent you were, you had a gut feeling here. Things weren't adding up and mm -hmm. um, you wanted to believe them, but there was something just off. And well, I, I am sort of amazed that I, I mean, looking back, there were, there was evidence. I did actually see some things that, that I should have realized were linked to current pornography usage. Um, but I didn't. One other thing here that I want to mention is that um, about when we were going to that female therapist, um, you know, a few years into our marriage, right. um, I, one of the things that came up was that he had never gone and talked to the bishop after that initial disclosure nine months into our marriage. Um, so I expressed that maybe if he went and talked to the bishop to resolve that old issue with pornography nine months into our marriage, then I would be able to relax about it and trust him. So he went to our bishop and I, I was not there. So I don't know exactly what was said, but basically he disclosed that he'd um, viewed pornography within the first year of our marriage and that it had been really devastating to me. So, so he told the bishop some story and about three weeks later, um, he was called as elders corn president in our ward, which I took to be a sign from God that he was clear uh. that, that, that pornography issue was resolved. Um, so I, I think that that was, was also part of why I refused to acknowledge that it was still actively happening all the time. So you gave him this, uh, gosh, it almost sounds like an ultimatum. It, it, you were saying I'm done here. You got to bring it forward about seven years in the marriage. Uh, what was his response? Um, he started disclosing some things. Um, it was, it was a staggered disclosure. Um, started admitting that he had, at first he just said that he'd masturbated, um, that he'd been actively masturbating and, and, you know, which was upsetting to me, but also kind of relieving like, Oh, so that's where your sexual, like you are a sexual person. Like that's where, your sexual energy going. Um, and, and he, he said it at first that it was like old, he was using old mental images from his prior pornography use and stuff. Um, so over the course of two or three weeks, he started disclosing more that, that, okay, there had been pornography use, but not in the last year. I mean, now that I know more about addiction and, um, or sexual addiction and how these disclosures generally happen, it really did fit the framework a lot that he would disclose a little bit and see how he reacted and, and then disclose a little bit more or, you know, based on how he responded or what his shame was. Um, 
And it was about three weeks after he initially started disclosing that he went to our current bishop. It was his initiation. He went to our current bishop and um, talked to his parents. And then um, I talked to my parents and got in touch with a, a life star therapist. Um, and we were able to pretty quickly get into a sexual addiction recovery program. So now that you hear what's going on, you're able to get the right resources in there, or at least different resources. Um, so what was your experience? Was that, um, I, I asked these questions. I, I know you mentioned at the beginning, you're divorced now, but what was that experience like for you? Was it helpful? It was very helpful. Yes. I think we both felt a lot of relief um, that we had a problem that was identified and that we could seek treatment for. So that there was a clear like path for us to get on now. Whereas before it was like, something's wrong in our marriage. What's wrong? What's wrong? How do we fix this? Um, at least what was going on in, on my end. Um, and, and with the pornography, sexual addiction model that gave, Oh, there's a clear problem. There's a name for it. There's a name for what I'm experiencing. There's a treatment plan. There are other people that are experiencing this. Um, so it, I felt like it immediately brought like a sense of relief and hope and safety that, that we would be able to, to figure this out. For, for those so. who aren't familiar with Lifestar out in Utah, I think they're actually in a couple different other states now, but um, yeah. for those who aren't familiar with addiction treatment, uh, behavior treatment, um, what was that like? So you're saying now they're actually focusing on, uh, on the pornography and they're providing a treatment plan. Help, help the audience understand what, what does that mean? What does it look like? Okay. So the first part of life start is called phase one and it's a six week education phase that, um, couples attend together if they want to. Sometimes individuals come because their spouse won't come. Um, but generally it's attended by couples. It's six weeks and basically it's kind of, uh, I said educational because the therapist presents information. Um, and we had workbooks to do learning about addiction, learning about shame, some basic family of origin things, a um, little bit about drama triangle, um, attachment principles. And during those, we would sometimes break into smaller groups and share some answers from our workbooks. But for the most part, it was not a group therapy kind of experience. Um, then after that six-week phase one, then phase two starts. And that's when um, each person goes to their group therapy. So it's divided based on gender. So I had my group and he had his group. Um, and that's, that was a group therapy, a weekly group therapy session. And we had additional workbooks and assignments that we would each work through in our individual group. And the groups were led by a therapist. Um, the Lifestar program is administered by different therapists. So it's, it's kind of like a franchise type of thing. And the, the program that we did it in, the therapist really believed in not setting like strict time parameters. So we were actually, um, compared to some others where it's like phase two is six months and then and then you move to the next phase. It was much more based on like readiness and reaching a certain um, emotional place. So compared to like some other lifestyle groups, 
I was in Lifestar for a total of three years before I completed it. Is that, and a lot of people do the Lifestar program in 18 months. Uh, so I just want to throw that out there that my experience is a little different from um, other Lifestar experiences. Um, af- after about a year of well, maybe 10 months of phase two, uh, I graduated to phase three. And the, the reason for the different phases is just because um, it keeps people in the group that are in a similar stage of recovery because early recovery and fresh raw trauma oh, yeah. looks and feels and sounds different than a little further down the recovery road. So, so moving from phase two to phase three, it was more about there was a little change in focus, much less like raw trauma. Um, and so that's why, why there, it was divided by phase. Um, and, and in phase three, there were different assignments. Um, one significant thing that's done, and they've changed it a little bit now, um, but there's a formal disclosure that happens during phase two, if, if both parties are willing, and it's a therapeutic disclosure. So the couple meets with the therapist, and it's an organized disclosure where the addict discloses to the spouse um, all of their behavior, um, behaviors in the addiction, and the spouse prepares questions in advance to ask. So it's sort of a a chance to clear the air, start fresh, um, to ask questions in a safe environment with a therapist who can hopefully watch for signs of lying or, um, and for me, it was kind of healing because there had been a lot of like unhealthy disclosure. It was helpful to have that formal disclosure um, where I had support. I knew it was coming. I had a therapist. I had friends. Um, so in a way that was able to heal some of the more traumatic earlier disclosures. So anyway, what a wonderful that, that was also part of Lifestar. So, so during yeah. that three years, um, you're taking at your own pace, working through your own uh, trauma. So this is wonderful. You're, you're finally, it sounds like now that you have your own cohort, so to speak, or mm-hmm. uh, a group of people that you can trust, um, you're able to now work through your, your trauma, your hurt, while he's dealing with, with his, his struggles. Um, yeah. Did, did you see during that three year period, um, the relationship improve or what was the result of attending these different phases? Okay. So I do want to throw in real quick that, um, we also did individual therapy. We each had individual therapy sessions and they're at Lifestar or somewhere. Um, we, we did it with the same therapist. Um, so the therapist that led our Lifestar group was also the therapist we went to for our individual um, sessions excellent. through most of it. So they understood um, what you were doing. And that, that's great. I, yeah. the, reason, the reason why I point that out is th- I think that's actually wonderful. In fact, studies show that if you only do group treatment, uh, you don't have as high success rate. If you combine individual and group treatment, the success rate goes up. And the fact that your therapist was familiar with the program uh, allowed that, uh, I guess, uh, synergy or, or yeah. you didn't have to re-explain everything, why you're doing what you're doing or anything like that. It, it integrated really well, which I think was, exactly. right. was really helpful. Um, we did have some couple sessions off and on during that time, mostly after disclosure. And we did the couple sessions as well with the same therapist. Um, when I was in phase three, so in the third year of recovery, I did go to an outside therapist for a period of time. Um, 
And that was really, really helpful for me. And looking back, I would say that I wish that we would have done some couples therapy with another therapist as well. I think because all of our treatment was coming from the same therapist, there was some more, there, there were just some issues that came up with that, that I think there might've been more safety if we had had some other therapists would, as would well. You, would you point that out if, if you feel comfortable in doing that? I think that's actually a really important fact that people don't realize. I, there's a couple of elements here and I'll share with you my thoughts and then uh, tell me what it was for you. Um, I personally will, I'm very comfortable in doing individual and couples with the same people. Um, uh-huh. uh, there are limitations and there, there, there are exceptions there. And that's usually discovered in the intake process is what we call it. And, and if I feel like it will be a benefit to both the individual and, and as a couple. Um, but there are cases where it's, even if I'm comfortable with it, it's not a, a wise move, uh, or it's not, it's not a good way to support the couple because of the dynamics or, or or whatever it is there. Um, and so a lot of clients will sometimes seek that from a therapist and, and there comes the other issues. If a therapist is confident to navigate and to be able to separate the individual versus the couple experience there and sometimes bring them together, um, and so the individual seeking that kind of treatment, both the individual and, and couples, uh, therapy need to be aware of that in the risks and the benefits from that. What was your personal experience with that? So I feel that there were some very real benefits, um, that because that therapist was aware, very aware of where each of us was individually. Um, I think that that aided him in a lot of our sessions to, um, I don't know. I think there, like, he was aware of things that we didn't have to talk about because um, he already knew. Um, but I think the biggest reason that I would say I wish we would have gone to someone else was kind of a safety thing. So there were times that I felt like um, our therapist was on my husband's side, and there were times when my husband felt like the therapist was on my side. Whether or not that was accurate, I do think that. And maybe that would have happened with any therapist, but, um, that came up. I, my perspective from me right now, and my therapist has acknowledged this is that there was some manipulation. Um, my husband manipulated, uh, the therapist and, and that was part of why, um, when I went to the, uh, when, when I went to an outside therapist, that was really helpful and empowering for me. Um, because, that therapist had not been manipulated by my husband. Um, so I don't know. That's, that's, I, yeah. Because, because, because the therapist that we shared was so in it for, you know, for multiple years and that there were things that he started getting blind spots and there were some things that, he didn't see at the time as happens with any therapist. I, I, I I think this is a very valid point. One that's kind of hard to communicate in a, in a brief interview like this. And, um, there's a lot of caveats here. I, I, I understand very well what you're talking about. I've even had to be very careful with working with couples that I've, I've known for a long time or have been, uh, fall or am following up with and knowing when and how to ask the right questions. It's very difficult when you have built that relationship and you're not necessarily looking for all the signs of manipulation. Um, 
And I'm going to be cautious here. I'm tempted to say a good therapist can see those signs, um, but that means we would have to be perfect too. It's it's a very difficult experience. And I think my main message to, you know, any listeners would be, I know it's really scary to get, I mean, to get in with an initial therapist. At least it was for me. For me, it was really scary to get into therapy, to build a relationship with a therapist, to be vulnerable about these things. Um, so I, I, it was really scary to go find another therapist, you know, another person, especially because I'd had some bad experiences exactly. with therapists before I had some therapist trauma. Um, so, but, but if you're feeling like you want another therapist, you want another perspective, a good therapist is not going to be threatened by you wanting to go talk to somebody else. Thank for you for saying time. that. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and you can get the support that you need you know, to go talk to another therapist or to go as a couple and, and try talking to another therapist. I think you brought um, up a, that, that you don't have to be, you know, still fiercely loyal to, to one therapist. Absolutely. And I think that's a good way to approach it. First of all, trust your gut. You, you've had, whether, whether there was actual manipulation going on or not, whether the therapist was siding with you or not, your experience is real and valid in that moment. There's a lot going on. There's trauma, there's hurt, there's confusion. Mm -hmm. Trust your gut. First of all, trust your gut. And it is scary trying to get, especially if you've had bad experiences like you did with, with therapists, um, pose that question. Do you mind if I look for another therapist for this? And their response, I think will be a great indicator of, of, uh, maybe, maybe their motivation or whether or not you should go get a, another therapist. Mm-hmm. If they get kind of yeah. awkward or uh, embarrassed or like question, why would you do that? Uh, or if they even kind of stonewall in, in a way like, well, you know what, we have all this history. How are you going to communicate that history and, and how will they follow our treatment plan? That's a good indicator that, um, you probably should go look a good therapist. Like I, like you said, will be totally supportive. Absolutely. Go for mm-hmm. it. This is your experience. Do what you feel is important. Um, and I, I think sometimes, you know, going to another therapist, I know this is sort of a tangent, but it could be motivated by like wanting to run away from your current therapist. Like maybe they're wanting you to look at some things you don't want to. So, so that could also be a factor, but. That, that is true. And that's why it's kind of hard. To, I think it's important to kind of a tangent, but kind of not. It's this is all part of that experience in realizing what's happening here, especially when you have a partner who's manipulating you, especially if there's been manipulation in the relationship, that therapist should be joining with you in building that trust. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yes, there is a potential that you're running away, but you know what? You get to. You're having, (laughs) you're having this experience and you, you need to have somebody who can trust you in this experience. And I have, I've had people come back and say, you know what? I was running away and Mm -hmm. I realized that, and I'm putting it into my own words, right? But eventually it came out and says, thank you for letting me do that. I wouldn't have learned this if you prevented me or discouraged me from doing that. And so you're absolutely right. People are going to run away when they don't like hearing what they're hearing. Um, But part of the experience is supporting that person in that experience. Cause that's really what you're asking your husband to do is this is scary. You should have been up Mm -hmm. front with me from the beginning, regardless of my response. Uh, It's scary. I get it. Uh, This is scary for me too. 
I need mm-hmm. you to be open with me just like I should be open with you. And so uh, great, great. Uh, I think that was an important tangent if we want to call it a tangent. So okay, one other thing I want to throw in real quick, another part of my recovery um, over the last four years has been a 12 step program. Um, the one that I have found most supportive was um, FA lifeline group. Um, so I did go to some of the um, LDS churches, ARP program um, and did not find them to be as supportive as I did uh, the 12 step that um, groups that are done through FA lifeline. So I just want to throw that out. Oh, no, I think that's important. And if you could boil it down to one or two things, why, what, why was it not as supportive? Okay. So I want to say at first, ARP was wonderful right at first. I'm super grateful that there was a place to go immediately. Um, and that it was, there was a place within a gospel context and within a gospel framework. So I did, I, I did attend ARP continuously for about six months. Um, and I was grateful for it. It, it met a need at the time. Um, the biggest thing that I felt was not supportive about ARP was actually kind of the way that it was structured, um, that it, it, was, it was missionaries that lead the ARP group. And a lot of them are not sufficiently educated on the topic, on what they're dealing with. Yeah. And a lot of them spend a lot of time sharing. The missionaries would spend time sharing and kind of teaching and lecturing things that were not actually helpful, um, were inadvertently shaming um, and created a lack of safety. Another thing that I saw happen um, in the ARP group in recovery, there's a real need to um, give permission for emotions and for letting your experience be what it is and for having that experience be validated. And within the context of ARP, often it felt like there were certain emotions that were okay to have. And there were certain emotions that were not okay or that, that, you know, and I boundaries are important in any group, but I felt like there was not space, adequate space in ARP for uh, anger. I felt like there was a real jump to uh, forgiveness and, you know, share positive things and share faith things, faith promoting things. And there's a place for that. But, but when you're down on the ground in, you know, especially immediate aftermath of trauma, there's, there's so much anger and there's so much hurt and, and there's, like it rocks you spiritually. Um, you know, I've gone through times where I don't even believe in God. I feel like, you know, my betrayal that I experienced, I I went, it ran deep. A lot of it impacted my relationship with God. So there were times when I felt like I couldn't believe in God the way that, the way that that group was wanting me to believe in God. So for me, it kind of increased some shame. Um, that is so some of my shame experience there. Compared to the SA Lifeline, where it's more general language, you you talk about a higher power, and there's I felt so much permission in that group to be wherever I was at, um, without feeling like I needed to to show only the nicer parts or to be immediately jumping to the right way of seeing things. I, I re- really appreciate you sharing that about ARP. I I think it's a great resource that is offered. I also agree that it's not for everyone. And, and I will say it's not for most people. I, I'm going to say that very carefully for the very yeah. reason you just mentioned, um, untrained, um, volunteers who are doing their best. Um, but 
not aware of how a lack of safety is created by reverting to forgiveness versus allowing that anger to be present and understanding how that can be healing in a group of people with a common experience. Um, thank you so much. I I don't want to come across as, um, criticizing ARP. I think it's a resource, Mm -hmm. but I think it's just that a resource. Um, And, and I was incredibly grateful that it was there for me at the time. And by going there and talking to some of the people in the group, you know, that's how I learned about some of these other resources as well. And, and I think that the experience in an ARP group, it can be heavily dependent on, on who the missionaries are and who else is there in the group. So, so let's come, thank you. I I think that was very important. Let's come back around to, you know, I, you have so much good information. (laughs) I love it. Absolutely love it. But I'm trying to remember if, if we actually answered the question, did in that three years of, of going to, Lifestar and these other various treatments, did, did we see progress in the relationship? What, what was a result of that? Okay. So in terms of our relationship, um, uh, we, we did not really, we were not very successful at connecting emotionally, um, through the three years at, at different times we did, um, and I'm not entirely sure why I felt like I made lots of individual progress, lots of individual healing and growth and relationships with family. I I saw relationships with my family members and with my friends radically transforming and changing, um, within, uh, within my marriage though, and my relationship with my husband, I was not, seeing and experiencing much fundamental change. Um, we did not, we, we were not connecting sexually. Um, we were not connecting emotionally really, uh, through that, through that process. We were, we were supportive of each other, um, in our individual journeys, but sort of in like the same old, like logistical business partnery, kind of way that it had been before. So you don't want any, you don't want a eternal business relationship. You want an eternal marriage. And right. So, and, and I was, I was, um, you know, he might say the reason we didn't have a sexual relationship was because of my boundaries. Um, and, and I would say, well, my boundaries were where they were because there was still no emotional safety. I wasn't feeling, I, I didn't, I didn't have trust restores um, in, in like a, I, I believe, I believe his disclosure was honest. I think I do. You mean the disclosure um, in, in phase one, the or formal, phase two. the formal disclosure. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I appreciate him sharing that. And immediately after there was some connection, um, he supposedly was able to achieve sobriety really early in the program. Um, so a lot of times during the process of life star, you know, there's opportunity to work on conversation about experiences with pornography and slips and disclosing that and working through that. And because he was so immediately sober, we didn't have much of that. Um, so, 
I, I don't know. <laughs> so tell, tell me a little bit more about that. I think that's important for the audience to hear now that uh, quite a few episodes are available with, with my podcast. What is sobriety? When we talk about sobriety, and it, it may sound like a stupid question, and you, you may be familiar with the way I've tried to define it and, and explain what is pornography. So how did they measure that in for the sake of the listener, sometimes the definition around pornography could be anything that could potentially lead to something more severe. For example, um, maybe looking at a lingerie or Instagram or right. something like that. So yeah. how was, uh, did Lifestar create some sort of uh, definition or was this an agreed upon uh, sobriety? How, how did that get decided so, and navigated? So, um, for us in Lifestar, there, I think there was a certain expectation in the group of what sobriety is, which is not actively seeking out um, pornographic images or sexual stimulation. Um, you know, things that with because um, with the addiction model, the addicts are turning to that as a way to to medicate their feelings, um, and so it was a uh, they weren't sober if they actively went after something that would give them their sexual hit. So if they were searching for pornographic images of any or, kind. um, of any kind, um, or, you know, I, I believe a lot of people in my husband's group and I think in 12 steps as well, sort of had like a 10 second, um, fantasy, rule that if they engaged in like fantasy for more than 10 seconds, um, then that was considered a slip, um, okay. or they needed to share that with their spouse. That's a, that's a, so, that's a pretty, uh, short, short window in reality, yeah. but I yeah. actually like yeah. that concept because it's actually encouraging self-awareness. You're not, yeah penalized or you're not viewed whether by your group yourself or whomever uh, as back to to zero again because oh my goodness my mind went into an automatic thought process and mm -hmm. now I have to uh, it, it seems <laughs> impossible but that self-awareness or that time allows you to become more oh my goodness that's what's happening okay I still have time to recover and not have yeah. to count that as, is, oh, excellent. Great. So he was yeah. basing sobriety. Ma masturbation is masturbation as well. Like no, no masturbation, no self-stimulation. Got it. Um, but, but really so much of it was like about the lying. So, so no, like, and, and with my experience with my friends on the betrayal side of it, so much of it was about the lying and the hiding. So yes, it would hurt if there was a slip. Um, but it, in a way it was almost healing to have those slips shared because, because then we were being let into that world so and, this, this is and we were a part of it. What's really interesting to me and not a criticism because I, I, I understand, well, at least I, I like to think I understand the human behavior side of it, but now you've gotten at least you're past phase one into phase two. The disclosure has been made. You've had a, a ton of psychoeducation about what these patterns are like and uh -huh. now creating this environment of trust where he can disclose to you and you're actually finding healing from it. It, it feels, oh my goodness, you're, you're open with me. 
why would he hold that back? If, if you've made this success again, I know I'm asking you to kind of interpret yeah, from his experience. I'm, I'm not sure. Okay. I, I have wondered if, if same, um, you know, that just, that just using the sexual addiction model, um, as you know, like these behaviors are bad, like coming from that, that background of like, these are bad and shameful by disclosing it's, I, I'm showing you again that I'm shameful. For those um, who, who keep hearing the, the phrase sex addiction model, just to provide a little bit more clarity here, there are different theoretical approaches to treating sexual behavior. Uh, and one of them is what, uh, what is being referred to here is the sex addiction model, which is places like Lifestar and other organizations believe in treating um, this behavior. And you, you're bringing up an interesting point here is even though the sex addiction model was very enlightening to you, it helped you as an individual um, you made a comment about how it might've been reinforcing the shame. Is that, is that what I heard? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was ideal scenario for him. Can you, can you say more about Could that? Be, um, just because I feel like all through the recovery, um, there was too much fear around it, even as it was trying to like be normalized and, and, uh, you know, other people struggle with this. I still feel like there was not an acknowledgement of how normal pornography use is. Um, and I, I feel like there was still a lot of fear around it. Um, mm. and a lot of labeling of it as, as being bad and wrong and, and, you know, so it, like it itself was still demonized a lot. Even at, even as there was work done to like, um, you know, navigate shame, like education about what role it's serving and choosing more appropriate ways, um, to, to meet some of those needs. It, it was still coming from this premise of, of the pornography use and the masturbation in and of itself is bad and wrong. And, um, yeah. yeah well, that makes sense. I, it, so what I'm think, think I'm hearing here is, is even though you've had this psychoeducation, you, you having this great support network, you're getting the resources you need, uh, for both of you and your relationship, there's a, there's a possibility that same treatment method was also reinforcing more fear. And so even though he knew he could reveal to you and that could be an opportunity for success and recovery, acknowledging that you slipped up again, you are now. Yeah. It still made him look like the bad guy. Very much so. Uh, again, not minimizing the seriousness of it or, or giving him an excuse here. But the reality is, is when we demonize the use, um, we then become and identify with that, that demon, so to speak. Right. Uh, And so being able to acknowledge that, even though, you know, you've done it, wow, that, that could really feed into not only his fear, but your fear. What does it mean? You did this again. Who are you? Is that, is that what I'm Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're in, in, I quite often heard it like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There's the addict self and the true self. And I think there's some truth to that. And I also think it's problematic. Um, and 
and was uh, harmful for both of us to 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 turn it into you know Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type of scenario because I believe it's it's more integrated. So. This is this is an experience that I hear so many have where they finally get the I, I thought it was beautiful the way you described it is they provided resources and information that resonated with you perfectly. Things made mm-hmm. sense um, and your personal journey, you felt like you were getting the right support, the right help. Uh, he was being you know held responsible in the right way to uh, divulge his information and his struggles while you have this great resource, you're also seeing how it was problematic. What yeah. Is, look, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, absolutely. Go ahead. I was just going to say, looking back um, there, you know, we're dealing with a sexual issue, pornography, use, masturbation, sexual addiction, but there was not much information given in our program about healthy sexuality about normal sexual normal sexual development, um, and I know like normal is a relative term, but you know like like human sexual development. There was not much information about that. Um, I even with disclosure, hearing about a lot of the forms of acting out that he used, um, I I still during my time in recovery, there was so much fear that there was never really any normalization of some of those kinds of behaviors. So, so I would like hear that he'd done this type of pornography that to me was like extra scary and extra bad. And there was never like any space to put that in like a less terrifying way. Um, or yeah. I think that's huge. And I think that's a thing that's missed in all treatment, uh, well, not all treatment, but a majority of treatment, even in those clinics that are like Lifestar, who are phenomenal at what they do, we focus on what not to do, right? But we don't actually yeah. explore and understand from a expert point of view of what healthy sexual behavior looks like. We have these assumptions, but those assumptions aren't necessarily true uh, or or need further expanding on. But I also, what you said there was the type of pornography and there's huge misunderstandings around this. Um, pop psychology, uh, a lot of the predominant resources out there teach this idea that it's escalative behavior. And that Mm -hmm. is, there's very, very little support for that. And that somebody who's looking up, you know, maybe bondage, uh, type of pornography or something very serious, uh, or, is perceived as something more serious than another, then that creates this whole new treatment model or severity around the person, or, or there's something more sickening about the person, which is again, problematic and not supported um, in treatment or in science. Uh, but you started to notice that. Yeah. I feel like I needed to have um, my experience validated. So I was coming at it from like a place of a lot of fear in of fact, course. it was really scary for me to to listen to his disclosure. You know, I had I had never watched a rated R movie um, myself of, of, at that time, and so to learn about these sexual behaviors and these kinds of pornography, like that, was a really scary thing for me to have to learn about those things. Um, and and it was helpful for me to like have others validate how scary and how much fear there was in that. 
at the same time, I feel like there could have been, I could have been validated in in my fearful kind of approach to it. And a more balanced view could have also been presented a little bit sooner. So my narrative could have been validated and some reframe could have been offered more. So what would you recommend to somebody who's in your position, um, situation rather, and they're struggling with a a similar uh, behavior, their spouse is hiding or in you're seeking treatment. How would you, I I guess what I'm asking is what would you do different? Um, or, or what would I do the same? Like, what would I recommend for someone in that place? Um, for me, getting support from others and moving out of isolation is so, so scary. So, you know, wherever you can start to get that support from, for me, looking back, I have felt some like, Oh, like maybe, maybe we should have gone to a different program. Maybe if we would have found a better therapist, um, you know, or I should have, not gone to ARP first. I should have, you know, like it's really easy to get into some of that. Um, but any, any support, any, you know, reach out to the people around you, look for the best resources, but applaud any, any steps out of isolation, any, any effort to, um, express your experience and get support. Um, and permission to experience, what you're experiencing to, to feel what you're feeling, wherever, however you're coming at it from, um, whatever you feel about it, those things are valid. Um, and there's a place for it and you don't need to feel shame for the way that you're experiencing it. So, you know, you, I, I heard a lot of messages about how, um, betrayed spouses need to respond right to disclosures. So if you freak out, they're not going to share with you in the future. Um, but, and that's, there's truth to that. At the same time, when you're in fresh trauma, it makes sense that you freak out um, and that you can't, you know, hold space for your spouse the way that you might be able to further down the road. So I guess this permission to be where you're at I, when I, you're there. I really appreciate that insight right there. I, I will often, um, if if we discover that disclosure has to be made. Uh, I can't tell you how valuable it is to, uh, depending on, on which partner it is, let's just, in this case, let's say the husband, pulling them aside, meeting with them individually and coaching them through this. Look, it's going to be rough. You don't try to manage your wife's feelings and emotions at all. Let Mm -hmm. her experience it. Um, This is about, revealing building trust and she gets to have her emotions just like you do in this experience allow her to be in fact encourage it um uh but that's i think oh that's a big one thank you and for that, that, that is something i that is something i thought lifestar did a really good job of giving space for the betrayed partner to to have their experience for their trauma to be validated and and to expect that the addicted spouse, um, needed to find support elsewhere that, and that the betrayed person can't, you know, you want to come together as a couple to address the issue together, but for a time, maybe you can't do that. Um, you, you need outside support, outside people. So. Absolutely. So you, you now are divorced. It's been how long? 
since the separation? Uh, four months since it was finalized, four a year months. since we separated. All right. And do you feel like you're in a, you're in a better place now? I do. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm, and I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that, that he is as well and that, that he will be. So. Well, it sounds like you're, you're making some important decisions to move forward and that healing is occurring. And, and I can't tell you how much I personally appreciate you coming on here and, and sharing your information with everyone else. I can't tell well, you. Well, I hope, I hope that it can be helpful. Um, there was so much, you know, shame thrives in like believing that you're the only one. And I, for so long, I believed that I was the only one or one of only a few and particularly, um, the, the sexless nature of my marriage didn't match a lot of the, what I heard about other no. um, addicted people. And I think that was part of what was so distressing too. Like it, it seemed to not fit. And, and since recovery, I found, no, there are others who are experiencing this dynamic of, of being married to someone who's acting out sexually while in a sexless, while having a sexless marriage and sexless relationship. And so, um, you know, for a long time, I was even nervous to tell other people in my recovery circles about, about what kind of, you know, sexless marriage I'd had, because often I was in a minority. So for that reason, I feel I, I want to share my story, because I know now that I'm not the only person experiencing that kind of dynamic. So and, much more common. Than and and when you, when you feel like it's just you, when you feel shame for, for your shameful experience, it's just so much more painful. So so I know now that I'm not the only one experiencing that. So I want to want to share that so that others can know as well that, that could, this is part of the experience. Too, I, so. I could assure you the people listening right now are, are comforted by that, that comment. You did mention one other thing before, before we go. Um, I can't remember if we were personally talking about it offline or if it was at the beginning, uh, you said one of the concerns or, and maybe you have addressed it in a roundabout way, but one of the concerns you had about this uh, treatment process, uh, just the whole, the whole process, I guess, was yes, you got solutions, you got treatment plans for, uh, the porn and sexual behaviors. Um, but some of the underlining issues weren't addressed. Uh, yeah. Do you mind talking about that for a second? Yeah. So, um, in, in, in terms of our relationship and what was actually going on in our relationship, uh, I feel like the pornography was kind of a symptom of, of other things that were going on. So in spending, you know, a couple of years honing in specifically on like pornography and the pornography use and, and regulating and learning about that, um, it took a couple of years before we started actually looking at, um, more of our relationship dynamics that were, that were actually more, more of a problem. And, the, and then it's linked. So, so it's not like, I, okay, but in a way I feel like the pornography, the focus on the pornography use was able to sort of feed. We almost like it, it started to become a part of some of our, underlying issues like we almost used it in old unhealthy ways so um in terms of like what the underlying issue was I, there's you know some control and power manipulation um lying unhealthy shame management uh enmeshment 
differentiation issues, um, sexual shame, repressed sexuality. Um, some of those things, we felt, we spent so much time on the regulating sobriety and porn behaviors that, that by the time we started actually getting to sort of the real meat of stuff, it, it took a couple of years. Which is absolutely um, a case I see quite frequently. Here we may resolve the pornography, uh, the addictive behaviors, but when that's gone, what happens is exactly what you described. You go into this, you're healing, but where's the connection? The yeah. absence of porn and undesired sexual behaviors does not create connection. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> right. And yeah. so yep. this is, this is an element that is always, again, I'm using always, not always the case uh, is, is too often overlooked uh, because we do, we make the symptom, which is the pornography, the problem. And we think if we get rid of the problem, which is actually just the symptom, there's clearly something else going on here with the constant manipulation. Uh, and yeah. unfortunately, the way that the addiction model or pop psychology, whatever we want to refer to it or blame it on, um, tells us the manipulation is a result from the escalating behavior. Well, we're finding that it's actually no. <laughs> an underlining issue that's unresolved and not treated. And then the pornography is, in a sense, becomes an, yet another form of manipulation to cover that real problem. It's this benign tumor that just is hidden somewhere. We can't find it. Yes. Um, and, right? and pornography, pornography addiction recovery can, in, in a sense, end up being used as a tool of manipulation. Yes. So, um, and there was something I was going to say. I can't remember. Now, I, if it comes back to you, feel Sorry. free to jump in. But I think that you hit, I think is one, one of the biggest takeaways from this is uh, not to neglect the, you know, we, we focus too often on getting rid of something. I, I, I phrase it, uh, it. You went to treatment at the beginning. No one talked about pornography. And then you went to Lifestar where, Pornography was finally talked about, but yet connection wasn't addressed. If there was some sort of way that we can address both the undesired behavior and the desired behavior. And in my practice, I, I always say, let's focus on the desired outcome. What is the desired outcome? Okay. You're using pornography right now. Uh, the desired outcome isn't just to stop that. The desired outcome is I want to feel closer to you. I want to feel connection. Okay. Even if you saw some pornography today, I still want to come home and have a meaningful discussion with you. I want to have meaningful sex. I want to feel close to you. If that means getting rid of the pornography, great. If it means we need to understand how to communicate better, let's do that too. Um, mm -hmm. And it sounds like that was an element that was missed, at least in, in your experience. Yeah. And it was, it was talked about. Um, and I, it, you know, connection, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. That's a, that's a phrase that I heard a lot in recovery. So there, there was a lot of talk about connection. Yeah. But we're, um, we're discovering like, it sounds like you did too. And, and forgive me, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth at all is, is, um, uh, the absence of the addiction doesn't re result in connection. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we yeah. talk about it a lot, but, but we don't actually, I think, 
create a treatment plan around that <laughs> and, and yeah. try to improve it. Yeah. And I, I do want to say that I am, I am grateful that, you know, pornography, because pornography was labeled as an issue, as an issue, as a problematic thing, it gave a doorway into, into some therapy and some, some information that was incredibly helpful. So, um, so I am grateful that, that there was this issue and there are these programs that help, you know, that were able to catch me and help me get directed into some, some real therapeutic help. Absolutely. Well, you've given us so, so much to think about here. And I I know it may sound redundant, but I'm going to ask again, any, any final thoughts or, or things you want to leave us with? I do want to share um, just some of the things beyond betrayal trauma that I needed to learn and that were an important part of my recovery and my process of learning how to be a healthy individual in a healthier relationship, because there were definitely issues on my side of our marriage relationship that contributed to the problem, um, to the problems in our relationship and that allowed our situation to continue for as long as it did. Um, so some of the things that I needed to recover from, um, were enmeshment. Uh, I needed to learn how to differentiate and that healthy relationships, um, there, what appropriate distance between spouses look like, um, along with that boundaries. So I had very, very, a very fuzzy concept of boundaries pre-recovery. Um, codependency. Will you, will you, will you is, explain uh, a little bit more about what enmeshment? I think it's a pretty common term now, but for those who may not understand what enmeshment is, I think sometimes uh, we use that synonymously with, with codependency, um, uh-huh. like you're about to mention. Yes. Will you explain what enmeshment is? So from my perspective, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, enmeshment is when you're so intertwined in relationship with somebody else that there's not a clear definition between where me and my feelings start and end and where you and your feelings start and end. Um, so there's this feeling of we have to, we, we have the same perspective on everything. We have the same feelings about things um, that we, we have the same idea about how everything should be. So that, that's sort of what I mean by enmeshment and Excellent. differentiation is giving more space for us to be individuals, for us to have our separate experiences, our separate feelings, um, our separate stories about the same situation. My reality can be different from your reality. So that's something I had to learn. So you, you learned how to take responsibility for that. Yeah. And what does that yeah. look like? What, what was your part of healing from that or gosh, first of all, that's really brave of you to um, recognize what might've been feeding some of the problems there. So what was, what was that journey like for you? I, well, that's a big question. Forgive me. I, 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 I guess, <laughs> that might be subject for another day. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, depending on the feedback, if, if you're willing, uh, that may be something that a lot of people would be uh, interested in hearing. Uh, but I think this, this part of it is, is, essential to recognize our part, uh, in the experience and, and you discovered that it might be fueled by this, not knowing who you are, uh, codependency yeah. or enmeshment in the relationship. So w- I had, I had to learn how to identify and speak my needs. Um, and, and I think I, I had a lot of shame 
pre-recovery about my needs. Um, that, and, and I think a lot of times when we have needs and we have wishes and we feel shame about them, then we use really roundabout, unhealthy ways of trying to communicate those needs or get other people to meet those needs rather than, than really owning them ourselves um, and taking responsibility for them ourselves. And codependency along with that, I think that happens quite often in marriage where we give up parts of ourselves and, and hope that the, the spouse will fill those needs. So, so we become unhealthily dependent on somebody else to meet our needs. So for me, that looked like, um, you know, taking more ownership of my own sexual self and my own sexual health and my own development as a sexual being outside of just the marriage relationship. And I'm not saying like, you know, go have sex outside of the relationship, but, but internally, um, stepping into more ownership of I am a sexual being even apart from my spouse. So, so the takeaway here is, is even though a huge part of the problem was, was the pornography, uh, you're encouraging or, or informing the listener that it's important that we also look inwardly. What, what are we doing? Not that you're responsible for your, your spouse's behavior. In fact, that's quite essentially what you're realizing. I'm not responsible for his behavior. Yes. And yeah. I need to take ownership for my part though. Um, yes. So, so, so in my, in my years of recovery, um, I was healing from trauma and betrayal trauma and learning healthier healthier habits and able to address some of some of my you know long-standing issues like perfectionism um and my own unhealthy ways of managing my shame so uh wonderfully lots of lots of work needs to be done on both parts of the of the partnership wow very brave of you to share and i i appreciate that very much from you thank you thank you 